Listeners and viewers, and welcome to this October edition of the Religious Studies Project Discourse episodes, where we take a uh, critical RS-informed eye and cast it on various items that have caught our attention in news media over recent weeks. Um, I am recording in Scotland on the 20th of October, a day when um, a lettuce has outlasted the UK Prime Minister, so I I couldn't not mention that. Um, Who knows what's going to happen there? I'm sure there's something we could say on that from a critical uh, studies perspective in some way, shape, or form, but I will resist the urge to because it is moving at a pace. Um, but I'm joined today by Tinguo and Carmen Celestini. Celestini, sorry, Celestine. Uh, we're, we're there we go. Uh, and uh, Well, I'll just introduce myself. I'm Chris Carter. I am one of the co-founders of the Religious Studies Project, although these days I I largely just occasionally get an email and the good ship carries on under the able steering of Andy Alexander and her team. So thanks to Andy. Uh, Ting, do you want to just... say who you are and where you are? Yeah, sure. Of course. I'm Ting. I currently am in uh, Toronto, Canada. I teach at the University of Toronto. Uh, I went to school with Chris in Scotland. Uh, equally cold. Uh, maybe, I, I don't know. I don't know yet. But I, 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 at the moment, I'll say equally cold, but equally friendly and nice. <laughs> That's good. Although I think it's going to get a lot colder in Canada, I would imagine, than it oh, ever. don't say that yet. <laughs> But yeah, Carmen can maybe confirm. And so, Carmen. Absolutely. Um, My name is Carmen, and I am currently in Waterloo, and I spend half of my time in Waterloo and in Toronto. So, yes, I can confirm it's going to get very cold. Fantastic. Yeah, I should have said I'm, I'm now based at the Open University, where I just was down in Milton Keynes, but the joy of a distance learning institution is that my home is my workplace um, pretty much all the time now. So um, I began with the, the political situation in the UK there. And obviously um, last month, um, this was dominated heavily by the the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. Um, I managed to avoid as much media coverage of that as possible, yet simultaneously write a piece for the Religion Media Center about how it was possibly one of the most significant religion-related events um, in recent decades. Um, just just the, the sheer like atmosphere in, in the country, just everything stopped. People's weddings were canceled. Operations were cancelled, um, roads were at standstills for days, and even good good old Republican Chris here uh, couldn't help you know, find myself like getting weirdly emotional, despite the fact that I'm like, no, I don't care about this at all. So it was a strange time. Um, but one of the stories that Ting has brought uh, to the table today is um, about how things played out in Hong Kong. So I wonder if you could just uh, introduce us to that and we can have a riff. Yeah, absolutely. So as Chris mentioned, something 
quite a few things major happened in the UK in the past few months. And in, as I was in Hong Kong before I moved to Toronto, so I was teaching and living in Hong Kong for uh, quite a few years. And uh, with the Queen passing, interesting to notice different reactions emerge on the internet, but in real life as well. And uh, there were rituals of mourning the Queen, and there were a lot of emotions, affect involved as well. And uh, I remember someone posted on Twitter saying that black and brown people are allowed to have their own feelings towards the Queens, because after all, they were that subject as well. And so that was referring to the post-colonial discourse and reactions to the passing of the Queen and the British Empire uh, as well. But something interesting, in another former colony of the British Empire that was in Hong Kong, uh, we actually witnessed uh, also quite an emotional uh, morning, spontaneous morning of the Queen. Uh, many media reporters have noticed this and pointed out uh, they've written brilliant, quite insightful uh, analysis about this. Uh, so Many also many commentators on Twitter. I think we see maybe two uh, ways that this event was framed. One was just pointed out, kind of uh, simply marking that as a colonial nostalgia for the British Empire. But uh, other people were also saying that it's not just or it's not colonial nostalgia for the British Empire. It was a rather kind of expression of. Uh, resistance uh, or political discontent in Hong Kong where other forms of resistance are largely becoming possible uh, considering political after the protest in 2019 there was this enactment of national security law in Hong Kong which made public any public uh, kind of gathering uh, potentially dangerous and we also witnessed a mouse uh, a mouse uh, arrests of journalists, creative workers, uh, artists, cartoon artists, uh, just ordinary people and students, young students being arrested and uh, tried and eventually imprisoned as well. So that kind of explained why people were mourning the Queen, because that was the, almost the first time people could gather in public without fearing much of any of the political consequences. I actually, at the moment, I'm doing a survey uh, just to really get out what people are actually mourning or nostalgic for, in their own words. And I could tell you now that not actually uh, some mention some mention that they feel sad about the passing of the Queen, but almost nobody feels nostalgic about the British Empire per se. So there's and they it is a really interesting uh, kind of event to witness in terms of how we understand religion, how we understand the discourse about religion, and that also made me think uh, there's something we might another story that we might discuss later. So I was rereading Sabah Mahmood. She was writing about the. Uh, kind of uh, piety movement in Egypt in the early, in quite, uh, just many decades ago. But something that she said in her book, Political Piety, that uh, before we judge a ritual, uh, we maybe should think the other way around. So before we think that people take part in a ritual because they bring in a agenda with them, we should think the other way around because quite often, or it can be rather what 
the ritual produces, the ritual in, in her work, and I think in what we witness in Hong Kong as well, it's the ritual that produces political emotions and political projects and political subjectivity, rather than people bringing their own political uh, agenda to take part in the ritual. So I think that's a very interesting way to think about this. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And that, that brings to mind, you know, um, we're obsessed with this definition of religion. Not we're obsessed, but a sort of popular definition is that it's about belief. What do you believe? Um, what propositions do you subscribe to? And so on. And um, I often say to students, you know, uh, you don't choose your beliefs. You know, beliefs kind of happen to you. You can't go, well, today I'm going to choose to believe in that religion or I'm going to choose to support that political party. Or so. These aren't things that you just make a choice about. They're things that you are socialized into over a period of time. And they're things that through ritual performances again and again suddenly you find yourself in a position, not suddenly, it's gradually, but one day you'll be like, wait a minute, I'm now part of this community and I have this belief. So yeah, the, like, yeah, it, I can't comment in Hong Kong, but here just people were participating in rituals. They were going to see the the coffin in, in Edinburgh when it was here. They were constantly glued to TV sets, not because they really seemed, many of them not because they really knew why, but just because they, wanted to feel part of something and not miss out on it and yeah yeah absolutely absolutely and also that also is related to how we define religion to so I, I think we are familiar with uh, Donald Schaefer's work religious affect. So rather than defining religion as kind of belief or propositions, we define religion as emotion as affect. So that that's what kind of a very important uh, way of thinking about religion today. yeah. Yeah. And I think like with religion, with what happened with the queen is in my work, the role of disaster or being afraid really affects how we react. And, you know, do we react as a community and it reacts our, with our beliefs? It can change that notion. And I think at the point where the queen actually passed away, I mean, we're going through such a transitional period right now in the world, you know, with politics and with, you know, economics and, you know, sort of instability in all of our governments when we're looking at populism and stuff. And in a way, you know, we can see it as a nostalgia thing, as something that we can understand that she was constantly there for all of our lifetimes, right? And so, you know, we may not believe in her or what she represented, but she was a constant. And now it just created another upheaval where people were like, well, we should respect the dead. You know, we have those ethical ideas that are happening regardless of religious belief. But at the same time, we have our own personal fears and our own personal beliefs and understanding of the world that she impacted on in every country. I mean, here in Canada, I mean, she's our monarch too, right? So, you know, we were grappling with Americans trying to explain how our reaction was very different than theirs. You know, they didn't quite understand it. So, I mean, it put us all in a position where we had to look at our own ethics and our own ideas of a political understanding and religious understanding at the same time. Absolutely, but then, but, uh, but then, in, in the Hong Kong context, I suppose, thing would you would you say that that this um, provided a sort of well, it was a means of protest, uh, but also it was like a safe means in a sense of like you know that 
international figure you know everyone around the world is engaged with it in some way shape or form so we we can use that um without perhaps fearing reprisals in the same way yeah absolutely absolutely that as well and also i think for hong kong uh a place that has been marginalized in the in global politics, not just now, but throughout Hong Kong's history. Uh, that's a very interesting way of for people to take part in what they conceive as global politics, as global emotions. Uh, um, yeah, uh, that's another way. So it's difficult to. Uh, so I guess rather than judging whether there is colonial nostalgia, what is colonial nostalgia? So it's interesting to, it might be more productive to think about the political history in Hong Kong in relation to the British Empire and, and the Cold War especially, and what kind of political subjectivity the ritual of mourning of the Queen today produces and, or what it kind of uh, promises. Mm. It's really interesting. One of the one of the papers I've been working on is working at this idea of nostalgia, about how it isn't something looking for the past, but really an articulation of injustice now. And so this injustice happening in Hong Kong and the emotional, you know, availability of having these protests, you know, that it's interesting that through a mourning ritual that there can be this articulation of, of injustice, but still attached to what we understand as nostalgia, you know, sort of looking at all those ideas together, really in a lot of ways as, you know, as an outsider saying what the queen sort of represented, really, I mean, as absolutely. a whole. Yeah, absolutely. And if I may add another uh, kind of comment about religion, the role of religion in all this, it's interesting how Christianity, I'm referring to Protestant Christianity or maybe the Church of England more specifically, the role of that particular church or religion plays in, in all of that. Uh, I think for former British and for former British colonies, it might be a very easy assumption to assume they are mostly Christian societies because of the British influence. But actually in Hong Kong, for instance, uh, Christianity wasn't that important a religion until uh, maybe the Cold War, especially through the Cold War, because religion, or Christianity, sorry, in particular, was used to combat communism from China, from mainland China, because, you know, that, that was something. So that's an interesting uh, role that religion started to play in, in Hong Kong. And I have a, an article forthcoming on this. So during the 2019 protest in Hong Kong, Christianity plays such an important role that the, all the media, global media noticed uh, the kind of unofficial anthem of the movement, a pro-democracy movement, was uh, basically essentially a hymn, uh, a Christian hymn. Then, kind of, a, it might be easy to relate this to the history of colonialism in Hong Kong. But the people wanted to emphasize the Christian role uh, because they saw it's something that could gain the attention. One reason is that that's a something that people consider. Uh, that will allow them to gain the global attention from the international society because Christianity, for them, Christianity is a global religion. Christianity represented all that different societies internationally. So that's something the global world could recognize and care about what they are struggling with, the violence they're experiencing. So I also find that uh, very interesting in relation to religion. Absolutely. Um Segwaying a little bit um, on the topic of queens, then um, Canada has another queen, <laughs> Carmen. <laughs> so this was this another story that you brought. 
Um, so we have a woman here who's based in Vancouver. Her name is Romano DiDio, and she um, was an adherent of QAnon and very much involved in the QAnon communities online. And through that has actually taken this position and declared herself the Queen of Canada. So she regularly sends out decrees to her followers, which are quite numerous across Canada and internationally, because um, there are no borders on the internet. So, you know, the role of the queen here is is quite important. But, you know, when we think about these ideas of QAnon, there's obviously, you know, the evil and the good and evil battle and the ultimate. But she also has sort of positioned herself almost as a prophet or a saint, where the people who follow her you know, they send each other blessings. She's created her own flag that says, God loves you on it. And they are we the people. And what she did was during COVID, she would actually respond to the prayers of her followers who would say, we need food banks. You know, we don't have money for food. So she created her own sort of food banks across Canada with her adherents, did the same thing for farmers who couldn't afford feed for their animals. She created like animal feed centers across Canada. And that just Sort of developed her worship. But with her decrees, you know, she has the blessing of God behind her and the American military and apparently some aliens. But she has told her followers that, you know, building on conspiracy theories like Gisera and Nisera, where we would lose all of our debt, she's told her adherents not to pay their mortgages or their bank bills or their hydro or, you know, utilities. So people are actually living in the dark with no water or living in their car because they've been evicted. But that hasn't changed their belief that eventually they're going to rise up and take away the tyranny that, you know, Justin Trudeau, our prime minister, and Chrystia Freeland with links to the World Economic Forum has. But there's always this continuous underlying of God blessing you and all of them looking for how God is supporting them on the side of being on the eternal against this new world order in Canada. And it's fascinating because, you know, a lot of people see this as a potential violent cult um, because they did try to go and arrest some police officers in a small town here in Ontario and it failed miserably for them. Um, you know, there's these notions that she says that, you know, she'll throw someone from a helicopter, but she's broke and people are paying for her RV where she's trying traveling across Canada. So there's this great sort of like, you know, controversy between the thought processes of this being a God anointed prophet to save Canada as our queen, but at the same time realizing like her lack of power and her lack of influence within what's happening politically and how people are responding to this religious movement, you know, instantaneously calling it a cult when truly, you know, it's not so much a cult at this point. It's definitely though very religious in their beliefs. Yeah, I just, I have no idea there's such an interesting religious movement happening around here. And she's, as you were telling us the story, she sounded benevolent at first. And then later, mm, I was just saying, hmm, interesting. <laughs> Yeah, she's very interesting. Like she's traveling right now. She has these two RVs that her adherents have believed in or have paid for. And she's driving through the East Coast to say that the hurricane and the storms that happened there weren't real. So she's actually showing video saying that this is like a government propaganda thing, that it's fake, trying to raise money and put people into difficult situations. But, you know, she'll hold up her flag and talk about God blessing these areas. But the government and its tyranny is faking, you know, these horrible storms that happen in our East Coast, with that where areas were decimated and people died, you know. So it's a fascinating mix. How big is, sorry, 
Chris, what you're about to say. No, 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 go for it, Tink. I just want to know how, how big is. Yeah. There's probably about 1.2 million people who follow her on various social media platforms. Now, we don't actually know how many are adherents and how many are actually, you know, just gawkers or rubberneckers going in there to see what's going on. Um, and, you know, but she has a lot of video channels and very active on uh, alternative social media, engaging with both QAnon people, um, people who are in support of Putin when it comes to Ukraine, because, you know, obviously this is an attack attached to QAnon. And so it's a fascinating mix where, you know, religious can be a social motivator because of the language, but the role that she puts herself in without actually calling herself a prophet, but she assumes that role in her position as the monarchy of Canada. Hmm. I was just going <clears> to <throat> say, uh, we'll ask a couple of questions. First off, how has she responded to the death of Queen Elizabeth II, uh, isn't she has declared herself the Queen of Canada? Is she, you know, I know this was pre uh, the, the Queen dying, but, you know, has there been any response where like, you know, well, you know, if you're looking for another Queen, that's me. Um, and also what, what's the, you know, there's, why are the religious discourses in play here? Because you know, these very general, like, like what is the God that's being appealed to? To you know, like you know, it seems that the word God is being used quite flagrantly, but um, mixed in with a lot of other things. So, is it is it this sort of civil North American kind of in God we trust thing, just benevolent? What what's so as for the Queen passing away? Um, Many of her believers, like many QAnon people, believe that the Queen has been dead for a very long time and that it was a hologram that was actually being presented or it's a film and that someone has been faking this for a long time. And so was symbolic of the end of, of you know, what's happening in the storm slowly coming, right? Like some believe she's dead, some believe she's been arrested and has been in prison for quite some time for, you know, her tyrannical acts and trying to create the new world order. So it didn't create much of... Of, uh, a stir amongst them, just more validation of their belief system. And as for the God, it is definitely a Christian God. Um, interestingly, where you'll see that they'll talk about alien police military ships coming down to protect them at the same time, we'll end with a Psalm or a quote from the Bible and, that justifies, you know, that they're on the side of God and what they're, they're fighting against and that, you know, so they can mix, like, there's a lot of, um, I, I'm not a big fan of this term, but this conspirituality kind of attached to it, right? Because they'll talk about all of the conspiracies attached to QAnon where, you know, there's the vibrational levels or, you know, what is real and what's a hologram and what's not. But at the same time, the one thing that is true is God and his support of what they're doing to end this new world order. And, you know, her daily, she puts out these decrees where she talks about that God is blessing all of them and that they need to find their vibrational level to understand, you know, almost like a gap a trying to be at one with God kind of thing. And so it's this amazing sort of like lived religion connection thing happening online where, you know, this undefined role, but obviously Christian God is the focus of this movement to save Canada with our new monarchy. Fantastic. 
Well, she might have gained a, a few more followers from this discussion, but I, uh, <laughs> I imagine um, many of our listeners, it would be from um, purely academic interest point of view, but one never knows. One oh, never knows. <laughs> um, oh, that's excellent. Um, we're already at 25 minutes and we've only had two stories, but this is great because they've been... Um, very productive. Um, I'm not too worried about uh, about sharing mine. I might throw it in just at the end to be like, uh, we'll see what happens. But um, so we've got another another couple of. I mean, I think potentially just for geographical diversity, um, the uh, I- Iran might be worth bringing into the table. So I'm sure um, viewers and listeners will be aware of uh, the the ongoing um, unrest and protests in Iran. But um, Ting, you, you brought the story to the table, so perhaps could uh, sure. contextualize. Um, yeah, so I think we all, I'm sure we're all aware of what is ongoing in Iran. Uh, I think the starting point uh, is the um, September 16th, uh, 2020, to this year, a uh, 22-year-old uh, woman, Samini, was arrested by the Guidance Patrol for, uh, according to them, violating the mandatory hijab law and then uh, eventually she died. So I think that is the starting point of the ongoing protests we see across Iran and kind of the digital activism we see across the world today. And I noticed something very interesting about this protest at this time was the the, uh, use of the term mandatory or compulsory hijab. So I find that a very important kind of discourse for our discussion of religion, religion and gender, religion politics today. And uh, I guess thanks to many feminist scholars, uh, anthropologists or scholars of religion, that we now have a maybe better understanding of Islam, uh, kind of the role of gender in Islam or the religious role in women's rights in Islam. So I think uh, Leila Blugo was famously, uh, she, uh, I guess her book and her talk uh, and her uh, numerous articles on do Muslim women need saving? And the answer, of course, is no. And uh, she pointed out for us in post 9-11 that we shouldn't think in this binary way about religion and about gender, uh, about what we consider as liberal feminism or about the world in general. That is this uh, Muslim world versus the liberal world, the liberal Western world, and uh, or women who are able to do what they want with their bodies versus women who have to uh, cover their faces, cover their bodies bodies cover their hair. Uh, so that was really helpful to think beyond the binary uh, framework that how we think about religion and think about freedom. And as I mentioned, Sabah Mahmoud, I think uh, she pointed out she took this a bit further in thinking uh, not just a critique of liberal feminism, uh, but it's more she propose a more complicated way of thinking about freedom and uh, kind of following what uh, kind of Isaiah Berlin has mentioned about positive freedom and negative freedom. But for her, 
uh, in all of the discussions that we almost have a kind of a presumption about the almost procedural role of personal agency but we never discuss how that agency is produced. So as I mentioned earlier in her book, uh, Politics of Piety, so that book is essentially about different modalities, according to her, in her words, different modalities of agency, not in the liberal sense, but and not even in the kind of left leftist sense of freedom. Uh, so uh, she looks at women's movement, the kind of the movement of a piety, how agency is produced precisely by following a very religious ritual and the emotions that it produces, but also the political agency that it produces. So I find that uh, that is related to how we think about how, why people were pointed out compulsory hijab or mandatory hijab rather than because that by pointing that rather than using the word hijab itself I think that is a critique of very clear critique of the uh, very patriarchal states uh, control of women's bodies of, of uh, and the violence of the state and so on Twitter there's also a uh, I think people were also saying that uh, some women are protesting for their rights to, to uh, against compulsory hijab and some women are protesting for women in India are protesting for their rights of wearing hijab because they're essentially protesting the same thing that the government's control of people's bodies uh, yeah so I find that the, these discourses really interesting Absolutely. Sort of that policing of what we can wear, what we cannot wear is the same form of policing. And it's still an articulation of our injustice and where what our role is in society. But I think that, you know, on the darker side of Twitter, where I hang out, um, these discussions have also become like an articulation of, um, of stereotypes and understanding of, you know, how westernized, you know, women in definitely in North America, how we understand like we have this allyship or that we need to share a part of this without actually looking at that agency, presuming that our understanding of the world from the Western side is how we should support this movement, which it should not occur. You know, it should be letting them articulate their agency and understanding of the role of their body within their religious beliefs. So it's been an interesting dichotomy with my dark side of Twitter. <laughs> so, Yeah, and one should not al allow this, uh, you know, Ting did an excellent job there of, of I think, you know, re retelling, um, particularly Mahmoud's um, critique of the dominant Western discourse on the um, Orient and the wearing of the hijab, etc. Um, and that comes to frame how our media portrays what's going Absolutely. on in Iran um, and we shouldn't let that get in the way of well there's a there's a real protest then there's a movement yeah. happening here um, but as we're saying we should be interpreting that through the lens um, on the discourse that is being offered on the ground rather than through you know this oh like oh well should they be wearing hijabs thing that comes around again and again yeah. and again Absolutely. And there's another discourse, uh, kind of secularism, secularization or secular state, which one kind of, the, because that kind of the uh, orientalization of hijab wearing that's also quite often related to uh, another binary understanding of secularism being much more advanced, much more democratic, much more modern than a kind of religious state or kind of 
uh, yeah, religion in general, I think a very interesting uh, realistic critique would be uh, looking at socialist nations. The socialist motherland that I grew up in uh, definitely is secular, at least officially according to the law. But we also see uh, violent control, policing women's bodies as well. And so it, the question, the issue is not which one is more advanced, uh, kind of religious state or secular state. The issue is more about what kind of government that you actually have or uh, kind of policing and what kind of political agenda mm. it brings on the table. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. The question should should always, I think, be about you know who has the power, what is being permitted, and what is being controlled. Um, you know, again, swinging right back to to, to round things off with the UK. You know, officially, you know, uh, what is it? Is it officially secular? No, it's not officially secular. It's officially Church of England in that sense. Uh, except if you're in Scotland, where the Queen would or the monarch changes their religious identification when they cross the border because of the head of the Anglican Church of England and the Presbyterian Church of Scotland at the same time, but d depending on where they are, etc. Um, but focusing on the the oh, like you know, what does the state say about the separation of church and state? misses the point is what are all the things that go unquestioned what are the traditions and norms and values that are maintained and policed and enforced in various ways and every geographical region has you know its own context specific norms that are being enforced in some way shape or form um certain things are permitted and there are certain freedoms and then there are certain restrictions and sometimes you know, this word religion gets brought in. They go, well, we have religious freedom here. Yeah, but what else in that society is being regulated and how does that manifest? And who is included in the category of religious to have freedom in the first place? And what are the groups that are excluded from that and therefore need to be regulated? Quite like um, Romana de Duo in Canada, <laughs> uh, etc. Excellent. Um, well, I've had an easy ride of it here as, as host this week. So thank you so much to Ting and Carmen. Um, I, I was going to to raise a little a study that was brought up, uh, that was publicized yesterday, um, basically saying that, you know, religion and spirituality are a, a good thing for young people to help them through their various mental health issues. Um, we'll maybe include that. Um, in the, the show notes for this, because I think it, it makes for some quite easy critique in terms of who was included in the study, what was their definition of religion, what was the definition of mental well-being, and why they haven't looked beyond that. Um, and also, it, it seemed to effectively be Oh, well, you know, relig religion is bad because it is, you know, uh, hierarchical and restrictive and it's not good for people's mental health. But sort of spirituality, loving, nurturing stuff, that's good. But then, then if we're not just into saying having a loving, nurturing, supportive environment is good for people's mental health, I think that's fundamentally where it ends up. So, hey, I did discuss it. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I think... Yeah. Um, 
what preceded was was much more fruitful and engaging. So thank you both very much. I thank will you. start recording. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Excellent episode. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by Editor-in-Chief Andy Alexander and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Israel Dominguez and Savannah Finver and our Opportunities Digest by Trevor Lynn. Audio editing by Alex Matthews and Nathan Springer. Podcast transcription by Ayesha Javid and Jacob Noblet. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, Instagram and other portals. Thanks for listening. Oh,